Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 this is the pro america report on the answer san diego welcome 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 ed martin here on the pro america report great to be with you sorry for that day off for you guys i missed everybody it's friday night and it's getting ready for a great weekend and um uh the biggest news of all of course is the president's diagnosis uh, today, he tested positive uh, early this morning, I guess late last night, for COVID-19. We'll talk about that in a minute. But, you know, we had this day off because of baseball and other sports. But I ha- also had a late night on uh, Wednesday night. I want to tell you about it. I had an event over across town in the swamp at what's called the Capitol Hill Club. And um, very interesting. And, you know, the organization for of which I'm the president, the Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, we have a membership there. And then you can go to phyllisschlafly.com, find out more about us there. And at Eagle Ed Martin on Twitter, of course, it's the Ed Martin Pro-America Report, and I'm glad you're here. Uh, and, oh, I want to remind you, Andrea Kay and I had such a great time. It was a big hit with our post-debate analysis. We're going to do that again next week for the vice presidential debate. So watch the debate or listen on uh, The Answer San Diego to the debate, and then we'll do the breakdown right after so tune in for that so it's ed martin here in the pro america report and uh, don't be reminded also go to proamericareport.com to get signed up for the daily email i send and also any of these great interviews and we've had some great interviews recently you can get them over on that website uh, proamericareport.com so tune in there um so i was having telling you i was at this event Cross town at the across, my office, my work office in, in the swamp is over near the Supreme Court. And I go across town. I mean, across the sort of past the Capitol. It's not across town, really. It's about Sorry. 15, whoa, 15 blocks or so. And I go across the way and I find uh, that there is uh, over there is what's called the Capitol Hill Club. It's owned, I think, formerly by the Republican Party. Um, and it's a, just a, a, a meeting place, got meeting rooms, it's got a restaurant and all. And we had. Our annual event celebrating patents, patents, as in patents and trademark office, the, um, we do this every year. Of course, Qualcomm, great San Diego company, has a massive number of patents. They're one of the most successful. And the history of patents in America is from the very beginning. The founders put the right of inventors and writers to have a use of their uh, invention, their uh, creation, for a period of time. It's their property right. And that's very different than other parts of the world where you have to get permission from the sovereign or permission from the, the uh, government to own your, to get benefit of your property. It leads to corruption. In America, the patent system especially gives you that right. So we have massive number of inventions and inventiveness gets tapped into because of that. And so we were Celebrating that. And I just want to tell you two things about this event. It's a dinner with a conference beforehand. Number one, because of the D.C. rules, Washington, D.C., it was limited to only 50 people. We usually have about 120, maybe 150 attend. You know, it's a it's a sort of um, it's a sort of uh, a, a, an insider subject. You have to be an inventor or someone who tracks these things to understand this issue. Uh, but we had 50 people. And uh, early on in the event, Again, it was an afternoon conference and then a dinner. I had two or three people tell me it's so exciting because they had not been to any event in six months. 
And I, I guess I've been going out more, and I've been to more things and more events going. I hadn't tracked it. And I said it from the podium then during the dinner, because I was the host and the MC. I said, you know, I, some people were talking about how it's the first time they've been out in a long time. And I had other people come up after and say it was really true. So it's extraordinary how many people, and you may be going through this too, I, I may have sort of missed this, how much of our life has been put on hold and really been slowed down. So the second thing I want to make sure to tell you about, about this big patent event, and I'll put this a, a video up online on my uh, website and my my Twitter feed at Eagle Ed Martin, but um, and that is this: the main speaker is the um, Asso- Assistant Attorney General of the United States for the Antitrust Division. His name is uh, uh, General Assistant Attorney General Macan M A K A N Macan uh, Del Rahim. And Mr. Del Rahim gave a speech. He's a lawyer. He was in private practice, and he gave a speech, and it was extraordinary. Now, remember. He's there talking about patents and inventions, which are important, but he's the head of the antitrust division. So he was very, he has a very um, critical role in analyzing how the big tech companies and others try to uh, allow the market to work. So it's very, very interesting. And I guess I want to flag for you, this guy's a man to watch. He was very impressive, really super impressive. So that was very cool to have him there and to spend some time. His name is Del Rahim. Uh, very impressive. So it was a good event, and um, that was late on uh, Wednesday. It kind of threw off my Thursday anyway, but we missed each other. So here we are. Uh, first of all, let me before I get to the president and his uh, COVID, which I know what everybody wants to think about, and it's what you need to know, of course, um, is this. Uh, job numbers, pretty good. Economy, unemployment numbers down. Um, so that was the news today, the early Thursday more, uh, excuse me, early Friday morning. Uh, we got some news on that. The slightly less, um, jobs added because uh, they think it's probably because of the schools. A number of uh, schools, massive school systems that are not going back to work. They did not hire, you know, uh, custodians and, and, and staff, uh, as they would in, in a September month. So that's that difference. But the unemployment number is down and the economy is strong. However, And this is where we get what you need to know. The president early this morning tweeted he tested positive for COVID. He has had some symptoms, they say. We did get a report earlier from Mark Meadows, and uh, we'll see what else we hear. Mrs. Uh, Trump has the disease, has the uh, tested positive. We don't know what the extent of anything is. Their son, Barron, did not test positive which is good, except think about how strange that will be. Um, You know, Mrs. Trump's only child is barren. They live in this very, very close-knit world because of the way the world is, and she can't see her son for a week or two or, I don't know, 10 days. We haven't heard very much about what the prognosis will be, what the timeline will be. But here's a couple of things, a couple of my observations for you. Number one, if you had to get the disease and you're a 74-year-old man, which Trump is, which makes him in the higher-risk category, there's probably no better place than to get it at the White House in the sense that you get top-level care, you get all access to any and all therapeutic options, you get every need weighted on. You know, you're not going to have to go down and get milk yourself or go to the store or anything else. You have sort of simple uh, thing and you have a a team of people around you to keep your work going. So that's certainly true. I mean, but it, it has to be acknowledged. The president is in the cohort of people that, you know, is going to be higher risk. Uh, I think the risk is still one or two percent of fatality, God help us, but it is serious. And um, so we're going to have to watch that. Number two um, is politically, I have to say it's probably 
Um, I mean, you know, as long as he gets better, which is a big deal and doesn't have serious uh, health uh, issues afterwards, a lot of people are going to look up and in, and they're going to say, oh, no, I feel badly for you. Uh, I, I want you to get better. Now, there's lunatics on the uh, Twitter and Facebook and other places saying they hope the president gets sicker and, and they wish him ill. But most Americans are not like that. And anytime you get people looking at you again differently in terms of uh, how they uh, understand and see you, it's an advantage. Or let's say it differently. It's an opportunity. And so I think in some ways people are going to look up and say, well, wow, you've got these uh, issues and you are, um, you know, you're dealing with that and, and how you handle it. And, and here's an interesting question. Will the president be able to do any public events? Uh, or I'm sorry, not public events, but video events. You know, could he be doing more video events live or otherwise and give people a sense of how he's going through the disease and the and the process? I mean, all these things are, are out there and um, and to not consider them. I mean, you know, is just kind of uh, not paying attention. So it's certainly um, uh, it's the world markets stumbled when they heard the news. I think they stabilized throughout the day and people realized, OK, this is where we are. Uh, but it certainly is um, going to change up the dynamic down the stretch here with only a little bit more than four weeks to go. So we'll see what happens. The reports earlier, by the way, that uh, Senator uh, Senator Mike Lee has the disease and he's on the Judiciary Committee. You wonder now, is there going to be some effort by the um, by the Democrats to use all of this um, attention and uh, intention to slow down the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett? I got to think they'll do something. I'm not sure whether it'll work or not, but I think they'll probably try uh, to do something with that. So we'll see. So that's all I know. I think, you know, we we've, many, many people are talking about um, uh, how important it is um, to, to keep the to keep all everybody, the country in, in, in prayer and uh, otherwise stay cool. Um, you know, I'm going to have uh, David Horowitz on the program on Monday uh, to talk a little bit about where we are. And he is very clear eyed on what the left is trying to do to the country. So uh, we'll talk to him and see what he has to say. And, and uh, that will probably be a little bit more uh, uh, energetic uh, than uh, my discussion now. But we have a lot of a great show today. We've got some great guests and uh, we're going to visit with them. One man who was for about 15 years worked in the Bush White House or the Bush administration, the uh, Obama administration, and then in the Trump administration for a year. He was a stenographer, and he had a perspective on things. He's written a book about uh, Joe Biden, and uh, we'll talk with him. His name is Mike McCormick. And we'll also talk with John Carney in just a moment about the economy and what's happening with the economy uh, at this point in uh, some of the numbers I just told you about. And also, uh, he'll break down for us the New York Times story and how unfair that was about Trump's taxes. So uh, we'll do all that. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Our next guest is a friend of mine from Breitbart. I should say Breitbart is a friend of mine and all these great reporters over there I consider uh, allies and and helpful. Uh, you, when you're looking for clarification on stories, you know, of course, I've had frequently on... Uh, well, not too frequently. I had Joel Pollack on at least once or twice, but I cite his stories a lot. He breaks things down, especially the the fine people hoax, which was um, uh, you know important and uh, and helpful. And another guy that does great work over there is John Carney. He write, tends to write on economics and what's going on with the economy in general and uh, what he sees. And there's a story that he wrote a few days ago uh, that when we were setting this up, John and I were like, "Oh, this is a really good one. We'll get it going." And of course, uh, with President Trump getting uh, COVID nineteen and everything else, it seems like things fade quick. But I do want to get this this story on the record. The story. So welcome, first of all, John Carney from Breitbart.com. How are you, John? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. 
Great to have you. Now, so this piece was posted a couple days ago, and I'll put it up on social media. The New York Times, I called it a political hit piece they did on Sunday, you know, when you're two days before a debate, and bam, you're going to run a story on, on the president's taxes, and you're going to give the people the impression that they'll take away. And in this case, the impression was President Trump paid only $750 in federal income tax in 2016, 2017. And of course, immediately, as, as if planned, which as it was, the Democrats had ads up and the other media went with it. But uh, John Carney dug into this. And and, uh, and and has a different uh, analysis, or has the analysis, I think it's true. So walk us through, John, what you saw when you looked at what the Times put out and what the data actually says. Sure. Now, one thing is that when the Times has not yet been clear exactly what they have. They say they yeah. have data from the Trump's tax returns. It doesn't sound like they have the actual returns. And they haven't put them out there for all to see. Uh, This has actually Mm -hmm. made it very, very difficult for a lot of us who want to check on their analysis. See, you know, did they get the story right? Are they messing the story up? What is this really based on? So they claim that in 2016 and 2017, Donald Trump paid just $750 in taxes. This should set off alarm bells to anybody who's familiar with the tax code. Because we have a regular income tax code in which you can have a whole host of deductions. And then we have an alternative minimum tax code. It's almost a, a, like a separate parallel universe of taxes that was put in place to stop people from abusing deductions, getting too many, mostly to get wealthy people. Sometimes it gets non-wealthy people because they forgot to index it originally. It's indexed now. But for a long time, people bracket creep meant that people are getting pushed up into it. But the point is, it should be impossible for a man of Donald Trump's wealth to only owe $750. So because of the alternative minimum tax. Well, the Times released a bit more of the information and how how they think Donald Trump got his tax down to $750. But when you look at it, Donald Trump actually had, under the AMT, a tax bill of $7.4 million. Which he paid, right? Which he would have, he, he would have, he would have paid that, right? But you can't not pay that. You have right. to pay it. There's no deduction that you can use to not pay it. What he paid it with was not cash, which is one kind of asset you can pay your, your tax bills with, but another kind is a tax credit that the government has given you for doing something that it has asked you or wants you to do. I wouldn't say that all tax credits are, you know, the same as paying cash, but there's a whole variety of tax credits. So if you restore a a historical federal building, you can get a tax credit Mm -hmm. for doing that. It's essentially a way of the government paying for something it wants done. Donald Trump apparently got a lot of tax credits for restoring the old, uh, post office building in Washington, D.C., and turning that into a Trump hotel. It was a rotting, oh. horrible edifice in D.C. He got a bunch of tax credits, and he decided to spend those. He can hold on to them. They're just like money in a bank account. He gets to hold on to them, and he can spend them if he wants to pay off his taxes. That is what he did. So he spent, he is, he's not, he's $7.4 million poorer than he was after right. he, he it's it's this the exact equivalent of paying the money in cash out of your bank account he just paid it out of 
a special bank account that people who generate tax credits have with the with the federal government that can only be used for one thing, right? It's not like he, you know, mm-hmm. well, he should have spent his cash and just held on to the tax credits and used that for something else. The tax credits are something you get that you can only use to spend to pay your taxes. So, in other words, so describing, yeah, and and. Can- and sorry, John, but I'm talking with John Carney at Breitbart, and you can see that from the data, New York Times own data. In other words, you're not guessing. When when uh, Chris Wallace looked at Trump and said, "How much did you pay?" and he said, "Millions," you know, that we ever, I think a lot of people went, "Oh, okay, wonder what that means." Maybe they, maybe New York Times looked at the wrong thing. What you're saying is, you can, you, you what you, what has been, re- what has been released is enough for you to see that would have existed. And uh, so that, so they're not telling us by telling us only part of the story. They're allowing the the narrative to be played out. Is that sound right? That's right. So if you go to my story on Breitbart.com, you will find a link to the New York Times story. Where this data is, it is just badly mm-hmm. mischaracterized because they want mm-hmm. to act as if spending the tax credit isn't paying the money for the taxes. And my point is it is. When the government pays you a tax credit, the only thing you can do with it is pay your taxes. And to call that not paying your taxes... I think is right. you know they could have said by the way if they wanted to be open and honest about it they could have said Donald Trump only used seven hundred and fifty dollars cash to pay his taxes and then he used seven point four million dollars of tax credits in addition to pay right. off the rest of it that would have been honest and open but that's not what they did here. Hey John, in in Missouri where I come from, we used to have a system that tra- the, the, some of these tax credits were transferable, and therefore you could go out on the market and sell them, and you would sell them for less than the dollar amount because you wanted the money up front. You know, in other words, if in this year, if I had a a hundred thousand dollars in tax credits that I had earned because I rehabbed a building, but I didn't have tax liability to offset it, but I wanted the money now, I could go sell it on the on a market. There was a secondary market. Is there a secondary market for those kinds of tax credits, or are they non? transferable do you know usually well usually the federal tax credits can't be sold on the open market like the state tax credits can but what they can be if they are attached to a business and you sell the business itself then the tax credits will move alongside the business so they do get transferred in fact i used to be an m&a lawyer and we did a lot of transactions sorry to hear that Tax tax credits were a big part of the value of a lot of businesses. They said, okay, you know, they have this many tax credits. Also, uh, net operating loss deductions, another, you know, big category. But these things have value to companies. And so to act as if using them is not making a payment, I think is uh, is a category error. Yeah. And also, and also, John, again, we're talking with John Carney of Breitbart.com. It's really interesting and helpful, I think, for people to understand this. The other thing is, if it's an asset like that, maybe you can't transfer it to sell it and get cash. But it, since it's an asset, it would have value to, say, a bank or to a, you know, to another, uh, when you're negotiating or you're trying to do a deal and you're saying, do you have enough to cover this? Well, that's a sort of, in other words, that's, that's somebody owes you $7.4 million. In this case, it's the federal government. So you're, you're using the credit, that shit. It's not cash. 
cash. It's a chit, you know, a tax credit chit. So it would have that value too, I think. So it really is. Okay, John, I, before I don't run out of time, we've got a few minutes left though. Uh, the economy. The news out today was uh, better than expected. Uh, well, I, I think better than expected job numbers. Still, still obviously a very tough economy. You know, there's millions unemployed. I don't want to, you know, do, but I think the, um, I think the, the folks were pretty, uh, in the White House were pretty pleased to see that number. Tell us what you're seeing on the, on the jobs report before we talk about the economy more broadly. Sure. So the jobs report, the actual headline number, 661,000 was less than expected. Um, oh, 800,000 was the expected number. But the unemployment number was better than expected. So we get two numbers out on this monthly jobs report. One is one, okay. uh, the, the jobs created and unemployment. So uh, the unemployment rate was 8.4 last month, but it was just expected to go down to 8.2. It went down to 7.9, which is very mm. significant because it bring, it means the unemployment rate in the U.S. is now lower than it is in Europe. Mm. With, mm. That was a wow. big Democratic talking point. You, you heard, you've heard probably heard Joe Biden say it a number of times, we're doing worse than Europe. Well, we're not doing right. worse than Europe. We're better off. Right. Um, John Carney, uh, Breitbart, I, I want to ask, though, the uh, the news of the president's uh, diagnosis to be positive with the China virus and, and Mrs. Trump. Obviously, that's a medical question everybody's got. We'd be careful to be respectful. But the economy was down early. In the, I mean, the, the markets were down. The economy, the world, uh, you know, took a took a um, took a, uh, you know, was shocked by that for obvious reasons. Um, what's your sense of the impact? How would you describe it? What would you say? So I think at first, the world, those stock markets around the world, sort of their hearts skipped a beat. You saw like big downdrafts in European stocks, Asian stocks and U.S. futures because it happened you know, overnight in the middle of the night. We got the news. But by the time the U.S. markets began to open up, people started to realize that maybe this won't be as bad as we think. One, we don't know the health of the president. Frankly, we don't know what this ultimately does to the election. And mm-hmm. I think they were cheered, actually, by the markets were also cheered by the economic data. One thing I didn't say about the um, employment report today is a huge part of the slightly of the less than expected number was because state education facilities, meaning schools, uh, hired the hiring was down to they lost 231,000 jobs that Mm. on a seasonally adjusted basis now if you think about it you think about how schools all across the country are shuttered the teachers are being employed the principals are being employed you know who's not being employed in a school that's closed a a lot of gym teachers for one thing a lot janitors Odial staff, yeah, and groundskeepers, yeah, yeah, yeah. security guards, all the people who work in the cafeterias. So, that, so a huge part, in, in fact, more than the than the difference between the eight hundred expected and the six sixty that we actually got. It was this big lack of hiring that happened in the uh, school systems across America. Which again, we, we the schools are closed. Of course, we're not hiring as many people. And that's usually a big uh, driver of jobs in September, obviously. Schools reopen, and people who were not working over the summer get rehired. Teachers get paid all year long. But the people who work in the cafeteria usually only get paid when they're working. I got you. 
I got you. Okay. That's it. I'm glad you I'm glad you gave that clarification. All right. Hey, John Carney over at Breitbart.com. I very I appreciate it very much. I've I've had John on a guest on one I've hosted on Breitbart Radio, and he's very good at explaining this stuff in ways that uh, kind of nitwits like me can understand and give us some insight. So thank you, John. We'll have you back on again. It's very important and uh, appreciate it very much. And uh, we'll look forward to it. John Carney from Breitbart.com. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, we'll take a quick break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the uh, Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer San Diego. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Our next guest, I've been looking forward to this. Uh, He has a new book called Joe Biden Unauthorized. And the 2020 crack-up of the Democrat Party, which is a great uh, sort of secondary title. Mike McCormick is the author, and he is a, a man who, for 15 years at the White House, on Air Force One, Air Force Two, he was a guy transcribing the president, the vice president, all these people. It was just, it was just a job, right? There's people that are there. They're not they're not political guys. They're you know professional. Hey, transcribe all this so you get everything done on the record. And so, kind of a behind the scenes look. And uh, he's now put this book together. So, first of all, Mike, welcome. But let me ask you the question: What is the rule or rules on when you do this job? What you're allowed to say? Are there limits? Do they try to put a non disclosure on you? What do they do in terms of this? So, but well, first of all, welcome, Mike. Mike McCormick. Thanks, Ed. Um, and that's a, that's a really smart question. I don't get that a lot. But the quick answer is, yes, I was there 15 years. And, you know, my position when I started there was as a contractor. And so mm-hmm. we didn't have a top-secret clearance. We never signed a non-disclosure agreement, never had a top-secret clearance, because our job was with the press office. So everything yeah. I heard as a stenographer was in the presence of the press. Sitting in the Oval Office oh. would have been with an interview done by a reporter. Or on Air Force I Two see. would have been with a group of reporters or a reporter interviewing or doing like, sort of like an off-screen off, uh, you know, screen kind of a background press briefing kind of thing. So, you know, no need to have a top-secret clearance. Um, and uh, so what I saw is, and what I write about in the book is, you know, I was about three levels down from the vice president. He knew who I was by the staffers that he knew sort of directing me. But at my level, mm-hmm. I got briefed into some things, like we went into Russia, and I talk about, you know, how we kind of knew going into Russia what Joe Biden wanted to do, and it didn't happen that way. But I also um, went in, I was on the Air Force Two with him going into Ukraine and Poland. And as I wrote this book, I started it about a year ago, just before they started that impeachment process, and as I wrote the book and realized what they were doing to President Trump, I was enraged, and I started really digging into what Joe Biden really did in Ukraine, and I saw through the transcripts I, I created while we were in Ukraine some, some evidence that, wait a minute, Joe Biden was doing a lot more then than what they said. He, he has this sort of, uh, I, I didn't do anything wrong, I didn't know what my son was doing. And as I dug into it further, on a WhiteHouse.gov website for Obama, I found some um, Secret Service visitor logs that were pretty revealing. And basically, it looked to me, what I say in my book is, Joe Biden committed malfeasance in office in 2014. He put his son in Burisma, the board. He did it. It wasn't his son who volunteered into it. 
because Joe Biden had a personal connection with the guy who put him in there, a guy named Alexander Kwasniewski. He's an old family friend. Biden and Kwasniewski, who's the former president of Poland, worked together on the NATO enlargement in the early 2000s. And they were family huh. friends. And then Kwasniewski came to D.C., and he worked at Georgetown as a guest lecturer. Both Hunter Biden and Joe Biden were really close with Georgetown events. So they knew each other really well. In 2014, in March, Joe Biden goes to, goes to Poland to talk about Ukrainian energy security. And where is uh, Kwasniewski at that point? He's been appointed to the board by Mykola Zlachewski the head of Burisma Holdings, the oligarch who runs the thing, and he's a pretty shady character. So he was trying to sort of clean up the image of this Burisma Holdings, and he appointed these Western guys. Well, in my book, in my opinion, I don't know this for certain, but I believe what happened was Joe crossed paths during this trip, before, during, or after, and he said, hey, put, put Hunter on the board – because you got to remember, at this time, there's two things happening in Joe Biden's personal life that doesn't really get discussed much. A, he had a driving ambition to be the president of the United States in 2016. Wasn't widely discussed. Doesn't really get recalled. But having worked in his office, that's what he wanted to do. And B, his son was going down the tubes. His son had been convicted, or not convicted, was found positive in a cocaine test with a Navy Reserve and was discharged for the Navy in February 2014. And this recent Senate report indicates that there was even, it was even worse. He was getting $3.5 million of funding from this Russian source, the, the wife of the mayor of Moscow. I guarantee mm-hmm. that Treasury report filtered into the White House, into the Obama White House, and all of a sudden red flags are being raised. So Joe Biden is in the process of trying to backstop his son. He's putting him on this Burisma board. They're, the White House guys are hearing about it. They're like, wait a minute, what's Joe Biden doing? And they had a meeting about it in, on, in uh, April 15th, 2014. Joe Biden is out of the office. He's up in Boston doing a speech for the one-year anniversary of the Boston Marathon bombing. And they had a specific meeting excluding Joe in the Roosevelt Room, Barack Obama, Axelrod, Fluff and Messina, and at the conclusion of that meeting, the first thing in the morning, what Axelrod does is he goes one-on-one to the Naval Observatory, meets with Biden. Four hours after that meeting, Biden has a meeting in his West Wing office with Hunter Biden's business partner, Devin Archer. Within weeks, those Hmm. guys are named as being on the board, publicly named as being on the board. But all the while, no one knows what's going on behind the scenes. The press doesn't know. No one knows about this. Until now, after the fact, we know. And after that meeting with Devin Archer, a few days later, Joe is on his way to uh, Ukraine. I'm on the plane with him with a whole bunch of energy assistance for the uh, natural gas industry. It was a quid pro quo from the outset. Hey, I w- and um, let me make sure I want to give to some things here. Joe Biden unauthorized dot com is the website. You can find Mike McCormick's book there. Get there, where to get the book. And he's got interviews. He's on Newsmax about some of this and all. Um, Mike uh, is um, you're, when you're piecing this together and, you know, you, you're your professional job. You're a you're a um, transcription, a stenographer, right? You got you got it's a skill you require and you, you practice to get up to speed. It's a value and people pay a lot for it. I mean, it's so but you're not a journalist automatically. But what you just told me, would you describe all of that as available if a journalist wanted to put it together? In other words, we got a guy running for president, you know, to run the free world. 
And and it feels to me like, although I think you are a very smart guy and a capable guy, and I read your stuff and I think, wow, this guy's got something on, that you're doing something that a, a, a journalist could do. Am I missing something? You know, I downloaded the uh, visitor logs from the White House backup website. Anybody could have done it. And I literally stumbled across this meeting that uh, Axelrod had. What happened was when I was writing the book, I uh, saw uh, there was a, a book written um, about the uh, Biden's, you know, financial transgressions. And they had a notation in this book about this meeting that, he, that Devin Archer had with them. And I went to the citing of it, and it didn't work. It was like a website. It was no longer working. But right. I had been on, back right. and forth on this WhiteHouse.gov website looking at my transcripts because I posted to that website all the time. That's where I found my transcripts. Right. So I, I saw this download the, what, the visitor's log. Anybody could have done it. I downloaded it. I, looked for, I searched through for, Axel, um, for the date, and the first name that popped up on the date was David Axel. I was like, wait a minute. Why is David Axelrod in the White House on, on this date? And I looked at where he was. It's, there's, um, I put the screenshots of the Excel spreadsheet of those things in the book. The evidence is there. And you can all, because I had been in and out of the vice president's residence, I knew the code for it was VPR. If a regular old journalist had looked at it, it would have said, Axelrod went in somewhere at 730. It's called VPR. I don't know what that is. I knew what it was, and I right. knew what it meant. Red flags all over the place. David Axelrod does not want to have a one-on-one with Joe Biden at that time in the morning. There was a lot of tension between Axelrod and Biden. I think specifically over the derelict lifestyle that his that Joe Biden's son Hunter was leading, and everybody in the White House knew it, but they kept it covered up. Uh, we're talking with Mike McCormick, who's written a book, and it, again, it's uh, JoeBidenUnauthorized.com, and uh, and his background as a stenographer for the president, and the vice president for 15 years uh, of both parties. Um, Mike, were you were were you are you a partisan? I mean, were you when you started this? Were you a Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, or any? Or is it not a priority? Or a guy working for a living? Or how, how do you fit in in terms of your politics? My my politics. I'm a registered independent. I worked in the White House uh, for President Bush. I started as a contractor in 2002. I left in 2007 for a couple of years and lost my job in the economic downturn, came back. The uh, director was an old friend, and she really valued my experience, brought me back in. She said, are you uh, independent or Republican? I said, no, I'm independent. She said, okay, you're in. So I didn't have to worry about working with the Obama folks. I didn't really care that much about it. It wasn't until, and I worked for a year for President Trump, and I thought, he's a great president. I love being here. What happened was, to me, uh, you know, I got canceled. I was the pro-Trump guy with a lot of Obama-adoring people, and I got canceled out of that job. And that's why I wrote my first Mm. book, 15 Years of Deplorable, a White House memoir. Uh, You know, I looked, I talked about in that book being a White House person working for Hillary Clinton. I was actually working for Joe Biden, who was campaigning for Hillary Clinton, knowing the whole time President Trump was going to win. And I know President Trump's mm. going to win this next race, too. You, you know, people, oh. the, you can't trust the media. There's a gap there. That's why I wrote yeah. this book. I know, I know how <laughs> yep. bad the media are at this. I know how biased they are. That's what the first book was. The second book is how bad Joe Biden would be as a president. 
Very good. All right, Mike, thank you. Hey, we'll have you back on again. Keep uh, close on the email with me. And uh, very interesting. I'm going to, I've only spent a little bit of time on this book. So I'm going to actually go back and look at your other book, the first book, I, 15 Years of Deplorable, a White House memoir, also valuable. So Mike McCormick, and again, the website to go to to track this down and see more about him is JoeBidenUnauthorized.com. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. That's right, Ed. Thanks so much. All right, we'll take a quick break and we'll be back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily broadcast from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, a national volunteer organization founded by Phyllis Schlafly and continuing to uphold her legacy by honoring family values, opposing radical feminism, and representing a conservative perspective in our nation's capital. Now the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. The political pundits have been going back and forth for months about whether voters should entrust this presidential election to mail-in voting. The numbers seem to indicate that mail-in voting could lead to hundreds of thousands or even more than a million lost votes. However, it's important to understand exactly what causes a vote to be lost in mail-in voting. There are many valid reasons why mail-in ballots might not be counted by election authorities. One very big reason why a vote won't be counted is if it arrives late or doesn't arrive at all. If you've ever used the United States Postal Service, you know that happens all the time. Not having a required signature on the proper line is another reason that a vote might not be counted. Another one is when the signature doesn't match the voter's signature on file at the election authority. A big reason to consider is the lack of a postmark on the envelope. An official U.S. postmark on the envelope containing the ballot has long been required as proof that the ballot was mailed before Election Day. Postmarks are supposed to be applied to first-class mail, but many envelopes are delivered without a legible postmark, thereby invalidating a ballot. There's no way the voter can cure any of these defects or even be notified that his ballot is rejected. Vote tallies must be completed and turned in to the proper election authorities by an exacting deadline. Usually this deadline is 7 to 14 days after the election day. While elections for state or local offices can be disputed, litigated, and even redone amid a system failure, the election for President of the United States allows no such leeway. The Supreme Court ruled in Bush v. Gore in 2000 that vote counts must be completed in time for the Electoral College to meet on the first Monday after the second Wednesday in December. That's in the Constitution. According to the Supreme Court, this date cannot be postponed. The few times total mail-in voting has been employed, it's not worked out well. If the upcoming presidential election has any irregularities, there would not be time to fix them. If that's not a recipe for disaster, I just don't know what is. Isn't it great to have a president who keeps his campaign promises? At phyllisschlafly.com, you'll find out about a new book by Ed Martin that outlines 100 times Donald Trump made a promise to the American people and followed through. The title is Top 100 Trump Promises Made, Promises Kept. Because there's more work to do, join us at phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening, and join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back, Ed Martin here on Pro America Report, and I, I have to tell you the uh, the most interesting um, story posted, and I've only got a couple minutes as we finish up, and I wanted to make sure to come around to this, uh, and it was in the New York Times, and I, I missed it because of all the news we've talked about already, uh, and I wondered, you know, it was like, wow, am I reading that right? And so I went back and, and took a look at this. Well, um, among the other policies, and I, you may have heard me complain earlier in the week that there was not 
any real discussion in the debate about uh, immigration, which I think is an issue that a lot of Americans, not just uh, MAGA base, that they, they care about. Well, the Trump administration announced, and this is an annual decision. Uh, there's an annual decision to allow, to decide the number of refugees that come into the country, and you're allowed to pick the number. Now, you would think, okay, wait a second, are we going to let refugees in? These people may be in real need, so is that the first measurement? Or, may, wait, our country is underwater in terms of unemployment and things. Maybe we shouldn't let anybody in. Well, here's the interesting thing about it. This is an area where people like me and other policy uh, and other people that know the policies criticize the the people who allow refugee designation, right? So the world the world organizations the the globalists make it so almost anybody that has a sort of good reason can be called a refugee. In other words, it's just a way to get more people in to uh, our country to be able to get here. And so here's and here's under President Obama, they had a hundred and ten thousand per year. They maxed it out. And the President Trump is down to 15,000 coming to our country in this upcoming fiscal year. Now, the reason why is when the refugees come, they get all kinds of benefits from the government. I mean, we we, we, when you're a refugee, we treat you as a refugee and there's all kinds of so they're not insignificant in cost, but they're also just a way to get more people into the country. Now, I, I do. I say all that to say that there are lots of examples in this administration of, of them keeping their promise. We've talked about promises made, promises kept. In fact, my new book is Promises Made, Promises Kept. And you go to PMPK2020, PMPK2020.com, and you'll see it. These are important to know. If you, if you don't like that issue, then you got a policy disagreement. But if you like that issue, you say, hey, the guy's living up to what he said he would do. It's amazing. All right, thank you, as always, to Noah, our great technical director, Joanna, for booking our guests. We will be back on Monday. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Talk to you then.